Amen. Would you pray with me one more time? Precious Father, it is indeed true that were we to write of your love, there is not enough ink that could be contained in the oceans or not enough paper that could be contained in all of the sky above us to fully exhaust this reality. And yet you have accommodated yourselves, yourself to our frame in a way that we can read your word and behold your love. And so I pray that as we read your word this morning and as we study your word together, that your great love for us in Christ Jesus would shine brightly through. That you would meet each and every one of us here this morning with exactly what is needed through your word. That you would help us by cultivating fertile ground in our heart for the reality of the gospel. And that your word would not return void, but would accomplish every one of your purposes. We pray this. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, friends. Turn to Matthew 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in the second half of Matthew 5 this morning. Continuing on in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we saw, as we looked at the start of this sermon, that this sermon starts with grace. It starts with blessedness. It starts with a declaration that certain people are blessed by God, not because of what they have done, but because of who God is. That the blessed life that God promises in the kingdom of heaven is a gift. But we saw also that it's a gift that we pursue as we started to think about some of the things that God blesses, like blessed are the merciful, things we do. And that prepares us for Jesus' next movement in the sermon, which is to talk about things that we do, to talk about ethics, ethical behavior, and righteousness. Jesus moves into what is probably the heart of the Sermon on the Mount in verses 17 to 20, as he teaches about his relationship to the Old Testament demands of the law of God. Jesus is seeking to correct misunderstandings. We'll notice as we read through, he says things like in verse 17, do not think. In other words, you might think wrongly. Don't think like that. Think like this. And then all through his examples that he gives, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's correcting misunderstandings In the law, or in relation to the law, one of those misunderstandings he's seeking to correct is that the Old Testament is no longer relevant to God's people. He starts right out with that. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. And he's trying to help God's people understand then how they ought to relate to the Old Testament law. And so the second error he corrects is assuming that the righteousness that's shown by the scribes and the Pharisees is the point of the law. That is what the law was meant to produce. And he's going to show that that is not actually fulfillment of the law, but that's an inferior righteousness. And he calls for a better righteousness and shows the way to it through his sermon. 
We're going to follow the structure that Jesus himself uses this morning by taking this in kind of two major chunks. One of those major chunks is verses 17 to 20. Jesus gives his main teaching. He makes his main point. And then verses 21 to 48, all of the rest of it, all of the you have heard it said, but I say to you, sayings, all of those are examples of what Jesus calls for in the first part of his teaching, mainly the better righteousness that he calls for. So we're going to take the text like that, but before we look at the text individually, let's read it as a whole. So I'm going to read for us Matthew 5, verses 17 to 48. And would you read along with me here? Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it that it was said. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. 
Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Amen. As I said, friends, Jesus starts with his teaching. And all of these you have heard it said, but I say to you, are just examples. Because they are examples, we're not going to be able to dig super far into them. But I want to take a flight over the top and say, what are these telling us about what Jesus is teaching in verses 17 to 20? So before we do that, we're going to look at his teaching in verses 17 to 20. Jesus' teaching itself. Jesus starts out. By saying that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does he mean when he says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets? We've already seen this kind of language of fulfillment in Matthew. In relation especially to the prophets, right? We've seen it in chapter 1. We've seen it in chapter 2. We've seen it in chapter 3, and we've seen it in chapter 4. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, or by the prophet Jeremiah, etc. We've seen Jesus bring to fulfillment what the prophets spoke about. And when we saw it, we talked about how Jesus is bringing to fruition when he's bringing fulfillment. He's bringing the consummation of everything that was pointed to by the prophets. It's not just that the prophet said, X and Jesus did X and therefore he's the Messiah. But the prophet said the salvation that God is sending would be like this. And then Jesus shows us that salvation. He is like this. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament is saying. That's true with regard to the prophets. And now Jesus is saying that not only about the prophets, but about the law. He's saying, I came to be that fulfillment with regard to the law. What does that mean then with regard to the law? When Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law, he is implying that the law itself had a prophetic function, had a pointer function. The law itself was pointing to something. The law itself was anticipating something that would be later fulfilled In Jesus, this is what Paul is talking about when in Romans he says that Jesus Christ is the end of the law. He's not saying it's like the stopping point of the law. He's using a Greek word telos, which is a a wonderful word and one that's worth knowing. Telos, the end, the fulfillment, the point. The one that all of these things were moving towards and are now in their fullness. Not stopping, but coming to fruition. Jesus is the end or telos of the law. The law has a prophetic function pointing to him. And therefore, that's why Jesus can say, the law will not be abolished. The law will continue. Not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest little mark on each Hebrew letter of the law will go away until all of it has been accomplished, until all of it has been fulfilled 
Heaven and earth may pass away, but the law will not, Jesus says. This means that Jesus' coming and what Jesus teaches and the righteousness he calls for is not in opposition to the law. It's not law and then grace. Even though sometimes we think of it like that, it's that grace is the, what the law was meant to move us and point us towards. That this righteousness that Jesus displays in himself and calls for in his people is what the law was moving and pointing and calling for. Some things in the law appear to be abolished. We might think of like sacrifice or food laws. But remember, it's not that they just went away. It's that what they were moving towards came and so they were fulfilled. When we talked about the Ten Commandments this last fall, we talked a lot about looking at the law through the lens of Christ. You guys might remember that little picture with the, with the uh, eyeglasses lens and how some things go straight through and some things get bent. And some, things are, some light is blocked because it's, it's there. It's the fulfillment. That's what it means that Jesus fulfills the law. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the expectations of the law, all of the things the law was driving towards, this is why Jesus says in verse 19 that those who do and teach the commandments that he's bringing are the ones that are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those that relax these commandments and teach others to do the same are least. Those that do and teach are the greatest. There is something, in other words, to strive for in terms of obedience, even under the new covenant. He says that those who do and teach are greatest because in verse 20. I tell you, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who do and teach these commandments, in other words, will be greatest because they're doing and teaching the kind of righteousness that is required to be in the kingdom of heaven. You must do and teach a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. What does that mean? What does it mean when the ESV translates it right, righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? That's super important for us to think about. What does that mean? I want to first of all correct a misunderstanding. Sometimes we might read that and say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees and think it means quantity. In other words, you need to do more righteous things than the scribes and the Pharisees or you will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. They were close, but they didn't quite make it. They just needed a little boost. And if you just do a little bit more, you'll get a little bit closer. That's not what it's calling for. It's not quantity, do more, but quality that is being talked about, do differently. Not quantity, do more, but quality, do differently. Various translations uh, translate this phrase as, as unless your righteousness exceeds or, or supersedes or surpasses or is better than. I think better than is a great translation. They're all good, but I think better than captures it. It's meant to be qualitatively different than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, the righteousness that was shown by the most righteous people, the best the best hearers and doers and teachers of the law of the day was an immature righteousness. It was a shallow righteousness. It was not the kind of righteousness that fulfilled the law. It was unfulfilled righteousness. It was immature 
in contrast to Jesus, who Peter Lightheart says, Jesus keeps the law like an adult. And I think that's a great way to think about it. Jesus is calling for adult law-keeping, mature law-keeping, mature righteousness. Jesus fulfills this law by bringing the righteousness that the law points to, to full maturity. And he calls citizens of the kingdom of heaven to do the same. This is the first kind of half of, the, of what this teaches. This idea that life in the kingdom of heaven calls for a better righteousness. Calls for a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees showed. The question that remains for us though, and I'm grateful Jesus doesn't just stop the teaching here and move on. The question that remains for us is what is this better righteousness? What does righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees look like? How do we have that righteousness? And we know it's important because it says, if you don't have that kind of righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Where does that come from? What does it look like? That is the question that we have in our minds. And that's the question that Jesus proceeds to answer through his examples. All of these examples that he's giving as he goes through this next part of his sermon are examples of what better righteousness looks like. And how Jesus himself prescribes an antidote to shallow righteousness. He prescribes a way of acting, a way of being that is contradictory to shallow righteousness. That will not let us maintain immaturity in righteousness. But that will bring us to the kind of mature righteousness that Jesus is calling for. With that in mind, let's look at these examples in relative brief, can give, uh, considering the length of them. Um, let's start in verse 21 to 26. I'm not going to read these verses again. We've read them before, and I'm sure they're familiar to you guys. These verses talk about anger, right? Murder, anger, uh, uh, murder and anger, and reconciliation. In here, Jesus' main point is that anger and contempt lead to condemnation. But I say to you, he says in verse 22, that everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment, right? That's what he's saying. And he's not saying like different levels of judgment, depending how angry you are when he repeats. He's using repetition to drive his point home, that anger and anger leads to this kind of condemnation. Anger and contempt lead to condemnation. And so, he says, here's what you ought to do. Here's what you ought to do. Leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Which is the same thing as come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on your way to court. It's not meant to be a different thing. It's not like there's two things that we ought to do and then righteousness is fulfilled. These are examples of how we combat the tendency of anger and contempt to lead to violence and murder And how we escape the condemnation that that leads to. Notice in here that Jesus uses a particular structure. And that's a structure that he maintains. Although he gets a little bit looser with it as he goes. Because he's used it already. That's a structure that he maintains throughout them. There's three parts. You've heard it said. And something along the lines of I say to you. And then there's usually something to do. There's usually something to do. This repeated structure 
is showing us that Jesus is not contradicting the law. It's not, you've heard it written in the law. Notice he doesn't say it is written. He says, you've heard it said. He's correcting the ways that the scribes and the Pharisees have been teaching the law to God's people. So this would be like, you heard the pastor say this. And there's some truth to that, but here, let me help you understand what's actually going on. Right? Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. That's true. Murderers will be liable to judgment. That's true. But I say to you that there's more to it than that, guys. Everybody who's angry will be liable to judgment. In doing this, he is exposing the problems of shallow righteousness. So in the case of anger, what he's showing is that we have a temptation to think that keeping the outward forms of righteousness are sufficient and that they're more important and more significant than the inward reality of obedient righteousness. We see this in his call to leave the gift at the altar. That would be, that would be really, really shocking to a scribe or a Pharisee who's like, no, you've got to, once you start this process, you've got to make sure to go through all the way with your offering and get it exactly right. He does say, come back and give your gift after you've been reconciled. So it's not that he's saying that these aren't important things. But he's saying these external forms of righteousness do not exceed in importance the internal righteousness of a righteous heart, of obedience. So he gives this prescription for an antidote, this redemptive action that's meant to contradict what's going on in the heart. He says, go and be reconciled. Think about how that targets sin at the root. Go and be reconciled is incompatible with harboring anger against someone, right? You have to let go of that anger to go and be reconciled. So Jesus is saying, you can still offer a gift and harbor anger and avoid murdering someone, and you might be righteous according to the law, but that's not actually what the law is meant to point to. You're not actually living out the kind of righteousness that is better than the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a righteousness that's external and internal. And so, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms with your accuser before you get to the judge. Don't make the judge throw you in prison, but instead, forgive, reconcile, come together. There's an urgency that Jesus prescribes in dealing with sin here. All of these commands that Jesus gives, he's already prepared us for them in the blessings that he already pronounced. These are still grounded in grace, even though they're things we do. This isn't Jesus saying, if you do this, then you'll really be right with God. He's calling for this as an outflow of what God has already done, which is through him pronounced, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Right? You have to believe that the merciful are indeed blessed in order to show mercy to others. Otherwise, you're going to think, if I show mercy, I'm just going to be trampled all over. Whatever offense was done is not going to be taken care of if I go and be reconciled. I've got to harbor it instead inside and make sure I get my due. But if we believe blessed is the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, then we're given the grace to go and be reconciled to our brothers. That's what Jesus is calling for, and he's grounding it in what he's already said. His second example has to do with lust and purity. Verses 27 to 32 
I'm lumping divorce in there. He says, again, that pattern, it was said, but I say to you. But he's doing it as an outflow, an implication from what he says in the paragraph above. And divorce is a whole big topic that we're going to have time to address when we get to Matthew 19. So we'll talk about it more, but I'm not going to talk about it much today. What I want to focus instead on is verses 27 to 30, where Jesus' main point is that the root of sin is found in the intent of the heart. And therefore, we must be super severe in dealing with sin in our heart. The root of sin is found in the intent of the heart. He says intent matters. I think this is really important for us to notice because I think these verses are used wrongly at times. So listen to what he says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, verse 27. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think the way this verse is commonly read or at least thought about is everyone who looks at a woman lustfully. In other words, thinking that Jesus condemns all attraction. And I think that's wrong and I think that's bad to think that way because what that leads us to then is an understanding that, well, there's no way I can fight just natural attraction, so I guess I can't do anything about this sin. Notice that's not what Jesus says. Notice he doesn't say in the section on anger, do not be angry, right? What he says is deal with the conflict through reconciliation. Do not harbor that anger and that bitterness in your heart, but deal with it. And that's what he's saying here too. And we know that from what he says, this one little word, lustful intent. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus is doing is he's referencing commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And combining it with commandment number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. This is a clear description of things like pornography. Looking at someone in a sexualized way for the purpose of self-gratification. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about this kind of treasuring of wicked sin in the heart that uses another human being for your own self-gratification. When unlawful attraction is cherished, Jesus says we must deal with it severely. This exposes a problem with the kind of shallow righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Namely, the difference between the root and the fruit. Right? The fruit of lustful intents cherished and harbored will eventually be adultery. Just the way it goes, right? The fruit of that will eventually be adultery. And if we make our goal merely avoiding the fruit while cherishing the root, we are still going to fall into deep sin. We are still going to eventually have the fruits come out. This is what Jesus talks about later in his sermon when he talks about the fruits and knowing people by their fruits. Shallow righteousness looks merely at the fruit, but the kind of righteousness Jesus calls for recognizes that sinful action flows from the heart and that righteousness, therefore, is a matter of the heart. Jesus prescribes the antidote the redemptive action of drastically dealing with sin cherished in the heart. He uses the extreme example of if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Not at all to mean that we ought to poke our eyes out. 
That would be gross. That's not what Jesus is telling us. That Doing that would still miss the point. Because again, the sin is not external to us. It is at the root in our heart. And Jesus is saying, whatever you cherish that leads to this kind of sin ought to be torn away from you. You ought to do it yourself because you're pursuing righteousness. The only way we can do this is to still ground it in the grace that God has given us by saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we believe that truth, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, then we will seek to be pure in heart. Then we will be willing to cut off a metaphorical hand for the sake of purity of heart. Third example Jesus uses, verse 33 to 37. This has to do with oaths and truthfulness. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn, Jesus says. His main point in this section is that integrity matters. Integrity matters. Therefore, God's people ought to be truthful. It's really pretty simple. Integrity matters. Honesty matters. Be truthful. That's what Jesus is saying. A question arises, though, in how Jesus says it, and that's, does Jesus prohibit taking oaths at all? He says, do not, uh, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. But then other places, Jesus takes oaths, and Paul takes oaths, and other disciples take oaths in the New Testament. What is Jesus getting at here? I believe it's better to understand Jesus as not prohibiting oaths at all. In other words, you can still in good conscience Place your hand on a, on a Bible and swear to tell the truth in court or something like that. But what Jesus is prohibiting or what Jesus is saying is similar to his sayings about cutting out your own eyes. That it's better to do this than to have this consequence. It's better to take no oaths at all than it is to be tempted towards unrighteous lying. The problem that Jesus is exposing with shallow righteousness is the tendency to look for loopholes to look for loopholes we'll read later when we get to matthew 23 about jesus prescribing these woes on the pharisees and one of the woes one of the one of the condemnations he puts on the scribes and the pharisees is that they like to make kind of tricky oaths they like to swear for example by the temple and then say it doesn't count because we didn't swear by the gold of the temple it's their way of saying fingers crossed it's their way of getting what they want by swearing, by, by assuring people that they would be faithful to their word, and then being able to back out on the cost of that by saying they had their fingers crossed. That's what Jesus is condemning here. It's this looking for loopholes, this seeking to say, technically, I'm still acting with righteousness. The Pharisees were doing that, and Jesus says, no, you cannot do that. Your father loves truth, and therefore you must be truthful. The antidote, the redemptive action he describes is is simply integrity. Simply having integrity. If you have integrity, you won't be tempted to cheat the system by swearing falsely. We must believe the truth that Jesus has already told us, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed in order to do this. We must, in other words, learn to treasure the kind of integrity that expresses the Father's righteousness, hunger and thirst for that kind of integrity with the promise that we will be filled in order to obey Jesus' command here. 
The fourth example, retaliation and sacrifice, verses 38 to 42. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. We're familiar with these verses. This is the one where he talks about turning the other cheek. It's one that people love to quote. What is Jesus saying here? His main point is that we must not retaliate when wronged, but absorb dishonor with self-sacrifice. Does this teach, though, total pacifism? The kind of pacifism that says we've always got to turn the other cheek. You cannot defend yourself or anybody else. I think the answer to that is no. I think we can find the reason for that by understanding what Jesus is referencing here. In Leviticus 24, for example, and in Deuteronomy and a couple other places, this principle is talked about, this eye for an eye principle. And we have to understand, why was it originally established? It was not established so that you could be wronged, and then someone could come along and say, you know what, you have a right to do more to that person back. This was established, actually, on the other end, to restrain retaliation. To say, no, 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 if someone, if someone broke your arm, the most you can do to them is break their arm. You cannot go and kill their whole family. That would be over-retaliation, and it was meant to restrain these kind of cycles of violence and these kind of blood feuds. But what happened in Jesus' day is the Pharisees and others were using this commandment, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and they were describing it in a way that promoted violence. They were using it to justify escalating violence towards others. As they would maybe say, you know what, they, only, they didn't only hurt my, my cattle, they hurt my house too, and they hurt this and that, and they would try to gather up offenses so that they could then be justified in aggressing towards others, in retaliating. And Jesus is putting an end to that and saying, no, you must not do this. It's also important for us to understand what's at stake when someone is slapped on the cheek or when someone is sued for their cloak, or when someone is compelled to go a mile. These are all issues of honor in a, shame, in a culture that's all about honor and shame. These are issues of honor. If someone slaps you on your, cheek, on your cheek, it's a sign of dishonor and disrespect. And in this culture, the right thing to do was to retaliate to regain your honor. If someone was compelling you to go a mile, what this was is most often the Roman soldiers were allowed to make citizen or make not not citizens make the peasantry carry their stuff and so they would do this to taunt the jews and they would make them carry stuff for them and they could make them carry it for up to a mile and they would make them go a mile and then someone else would come along and make them go a mile and it was meant to shame them meant to dishonor them meant to put them down and what jesus is saying here is instead of seeking to regain your honor By retaliation, absorb the dishonor with self-sacrifice. Absorb the dishonor with self-sacrifice. This is what true righteousness looks like. I think uh, it's possible to translate in verse 39 when Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil. Another way to translate that is do not resist by evil means. And I think that probably gets a little bit closer to what Jesus is talking about here. I think we can get it either way. But I think that helps us see what Jesus is talking about. Do not resist by evil means of retaliation. 
but resist these ways through self-sacrifice. The problem with shallow righteousness that this exposes is the tendency to miss the point of the law. The tendency to miss the point of the law. People heard this saying and thought the point is how much can I do to regain my honor? How much can I do to get back at someone who has wronged me? And Jesus says, no, that's not the point of the law. The point of the law was how much can you give? How much can you sacrifice for the sake of others? And so he gives this antidote in verse 42. Give, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Sacrificially suffer wrong. This is what Jesus did par excellence when he suffered all of this wrong on the cross. These are all things that happened to him and he did not seek to retaliate to regain his honor. Instead, he showed this superior righteousness, this better righteousness. The only way to do this is to, again, believe the promise that blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is calling for that kind of meekness here. His last example, and it's really a summary of all of the other ones, is in verse 43 to 48. This has to do with love. Some had heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was never prescribed in the law, but this is the understanding and implication of the law. Love your neighbor. Well, then we hate our enemies, right? Jesus says, no, we must instead be like our father, which is perfect. Jesus says we must be like our father, which is perfect. He says to to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's just what the world does. That's not any kind of righteousness that's even better than the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the same kind of righteousness that the world shows. Our standard is different. The problem he exposes here is a worldly righteousness that says, I only have to love those who love me. It's also exposing a tendency to get around loving our neighbor by defining someone as our enemy, right? This is the question, who's my neighbor, that brought about Jesus' teaching on the Good Samaritan. Which we seek to justify hatred by labeling someone the enemy and say we're okay then hating them because they've wronged us. Jesus instead says, by way of prescribing the antidote, the redemptive action, be perfect like your father is perfect. The better righteousness is not like the world. In other words, it's a different category altogether. It's the kind of righteousness displayed by your father. And what does God do? We read about it in Romans. He loves enemies, right? He loved us while we were still enemies. Therefore, the call to be like him is to love enemies. We can only believe this. We can only do this if we believe Jesus' words, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is calling us, to live out that reality. All of these examples are accumulating in a, in a picture of the better righteousness that Jesus calls for. The better righteousness that Jesus calls for. We see it's not merely external. It's not about forms of righteousness, but it's internal. It's about matters of the heart. We see also that this better righteousness takes sin really seriously and seeks to deal with sin by killing it at the root. We see that this better righteousness kills sin, not merely by avoiding things, but by prescribing a redemptive, positive action. It's not just don't do this. But do this thing that is positive righteousness that is incompatible with the kind of sin 
that we're drawn into. We see that with the better righteousness, the goal is not merely personal to be right with God. But the goal is broader. The goal is actually other-focused. To bring redemptive reconciliation to the world. These things, these ways Jesus is calling people to act, involve not just them and God, but them and others. They're meant to be redemptive towards others. And that's why I say that, that what Jesus is teaching in here is that life in the kingdom of heaven calls for redemptive righteousness. That's the better righteousness that Jesus is calling for. Redemptive righteousness. It's better than the scribes and the Pharisees. It does all of these things. And it can be summed up in one verse. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the righteousness that Jesus calls for. That's the righteousness that the kingdom of heaven requires. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the question that floods into our minds when we read that is how on earth can we do that right how can we possibly be perfect i i think the standards that he puts in here are high and then he ups the ante altogether, and he does that mercifully he does that to keep us from just building a list off these chapters and checking it off because now we have perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And if we were to make a list of all God's perfections, as we sang earlier, there is not enough paper in the sky to accomplish that. This pushes us back to the first beatitude. Remember what it is, what Jesus starts with. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the only way to fulfill the kind of redemptive righteousness that Jesus calls for. We must be poor in spirit and seek to find it in Jesus, not in ourselves. Jesus himself is the source of this redemptive righteousness. Because the reality is, apart from Christ, we can take a look at the root all we want, but it's still going to keep welling up with sin. Because rotten to the core is who we are apart from Christ, because in Adam all have sinned. We have no ability to refresh our root or to dig down deep enough to find good roots, because we're dead, as Paul talks about in Ephesians. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, we have been made alive. We have been freed from slavery to sin, and we've been given new roots. This is what Jesus talks about when he teaches that he is the vine and we are the branches. We've been given these new roots and we take and attach to these new roots. And out of those new roots, we draw the grace that we need to display this kind of redemptive righteousness. And we do it in imitation of Jesus who's already done it. Jesus shows perfectly what it looks like to live this way in light of anger and in light of lust and in light of oaths and in light of retaliation and certainly in light of loving his enemies right we draw this from him and then we follow his example this is what it means to be salt and light to have the world see our good works and give glory to god jesus is broadening our understanding of the kind of righteousness which the law always pointed to and which characterizes the kingdom of heaven it's a false view to think of this as just me and God, right standing with God. Certainly righteousness has to do with our right standing of God. But if we stay here at this immature view of righteousness, the Christian life 
will look like either exhausted giving up because we know we don't measure up. Or the Christian life will look like self-righteous comparison. We'll keep looking at others and wondering why they can't figure out the same kind of righteousness we've already got down. But friends, what Jesus is calling us to do is to take sin seriously, to anchor ourselves in the justifying work of Christ, and then to draw from that work, living this kind of redemptive righteousness and experiencing the joy that comes from participation in the kingdom of heaven. The kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to show is a participation in what he is doing, which is restoring all things. We get to do that as we act out these and other practical applications of the Father's perfection. We get to ourselves, pray thy kingdom come, and we get to participate in its coming. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. That's what we long to do, and it's my prayer that all of us would do that. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you would help us. Help us not lose heart, but help us pursue with vigor the kind of redemptive righteousness you call for. Help us be like Paul, who works harder than anybody else, but it not be us, but the grace of God that is at work in us. I thank you that you have not called us to just meet this standard and then set us off on our own to go and struggle and strive and fail and grow discouraged, but that you have gone before us. The kind of perfection you're calling us to show is the kind of perfection you displayed perfectly in your son, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for perfectly obeying the Father and for sending us your spirit so that we can remain rooted in you and seek to fulfill this kind of righteousness. I thank you that one day we will, that one day we will be perfect when you return and you consummate all things. We long for that day, Jesus. Give us faith in the meantime to strive like Paul, forgetting what lies behind us and straining forward to the upward call. Would you help us, we pray. Amen.